Hey, you're listening to the Big Breakdown Podcast with Chris Stafford and Harrison Marshall. Take it away, fellas. Hello and welcome along to Season 4 of the Big Breakdown Podcast, where this season we are looking at talent development and today we are looking at psychosocial behaviours. Harrison, it's uh, been a few weeks uh, (laughs) since we've had an episode out, but uh, here we are uh, with Episode 3 of Season 4 and we've got a great guest ahead of us. Well, you you can't rush something that's that's high quality, can you? Because, you know, quality takes its time. Correct, it does. It does, and uh, we've we we also was struggling to get a guest, and Andy Andy was miraculously uh, agreed to come on at the very last minute, and he uh, and and come and chat to us, um, and I'm really looking forward to having a, a chat with him about it. But um, I think psychosocial behaviour stuff, I think it's a real interesting piece that probably isn't covered enough um, of how important it is within not just the town development pathway, but grassroots coaching in general. It, yeah, no, what we've spoken around a lot in the in a lot of previous episodes is, is understanding our who. Now, if you're going to understand it, you know, there's always going to be areas in which we can help develop their their who. So why isn't it more why isn't it more spoken about in the world of coaching? Well, we've got a cracking guest on today that hopefully can give us some insight into how we can begin to uh, incorporate incorporate it into our own coaching. We do. So today we are joined by Dr. Andrew Abraham, Head of Subject of Sports Coaching at Leeds Beckett University. Andrew joined Leeds Beckett University in November 2007. During this time, he's acted as group leader for sports coaching. He's been involved in the development of numerous undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the area of sports coaching as well. One of the most pleasing aspects of his work is seeing graduates from the course gain professional roles, making positive impacts in developing of young people and other coaches. Andrew's most recently been involved in developing and delivering a postgraduate diploma in coach development uh, to coach developer within the within the English Football Association. As well as being an academic on the sports coaching at Leeds Beckett University, Andy has also got experience of coaching rugby union within grassroots game, coaching his son's age group from under, for under, under sevens upwards. Uh, Andy joins us today to chat about psychosocial development within the talent development pathway. Andy, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. All good, thanks. Yeah. Uh, Good, good. Thank you. Uh, thanks for agreeing to come on. Um, in this season of the podcast, we're looking at sort of talent development and um, just some general advice that, that coaches can have for sort of supporting play development um, at, at clubs, basically. Um, and then sort of in this episode, we really want to focus on psychosocial behavioural skills. I think it'd be good if we could just kick off by um, just giving us an overview of when we say that, what, what, what is it we mean by that? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's a it's a very broad uh, and all encompassing term, which you could pretty much put anything under there. Which essentially, that the skills that allow us to um, engage in life um, at, a, at, a, at its most simplistic level. Uh, you know, in terms of you know, when kids first go to school, how do they make friends? Um, how do they deal with a teacher? How do they actually just thrive in life generally? Um, and then you can perhaps move more into a greater level of specialism in terms of looking at, well, are there any of these things which um, which start to really help in certain circumstances? Um, you know, so we, we, you know, for example, the classic one is, 
from going into exams. But that's a that's a fairly unique experience, and for some that might be um, being environment. And we might, um, well, might we probably should offer people the the, the skills in which they can cope with the way in which they feel about environment. I suppose I, I like analogies uh, and a sort of analogy is you know everyone learns to walk pretty much. Um, if people with the capability learn to walk um, but we know that when you put people under pressure the walking patterns change so everyone can learn to walk to you know engage in life but if someone suddenly says by the way you're going to walk um, you know for a roofer for example going up on a roof, you know, maybe 30 or 40 feet up, then probably they need to learn to walk in a more specialized way to cope with the demands that they're, that they're now in. And I think psychosocial, psychobehavioral skills in that, that everyone will develop them to some extent just to get through life. But there's times where we might, we might need them to be a little bit more specialized and developed to cope with the demands that life is, is starting to throw at us. Um, so that's a, a, a nice way to get into it, perhaps. No, no, it's it's very interesting. I think, like you say, there for us, um, from from us in the coaching uh, context, there it's you know, with it being so all encompassing, it's um, it can, be, it, it can be quite difficult for us to begin to break down. Um, how much I know it's a, it's probably quite a generic question here, but you know, people see sport how 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 is sport kind of used as a main vehicle driver for developing to uh, developing these uh, these skills well i mean sport is a setting isn't it we we want um even if you engage in individual sports it's still a social setting um, to that social setting we have to have a, a set of skills that allow us to do that and you, you can go from a very People, you know, we probably all remember the um, the shy kid who didn't get involved. Now, you, there's actually research which looks at shyness and around chronic shyness and what's what's lacking in terms of someone's capability of actually engaging with the group. And actually, good coaches will try and encourage that person to have confidence in the skills that they have in order to enter that group. Um, so, you know, you can look at something as simple as saying hello to group, a group of people of. Um, a phrase which is used, which is play entry. You've got a child which says, can I play? That's, that's a real skill that, that people have. Uh, people don't have that. We perhaps need to help them develop that. And that's what parents do. Go see if you can play or I'll come with you and, you know, we'll, we'll try and get you involved. And just by of engaging in that social setting will start to develop a, a set of skills that allows to do that so then starting to understand the rule being what it's like to be in that setting is what's acceptable and what's acceptable and and you see over a period of time the social skills people's capacity and respect and trust each other and under, essentially understand the rules of the of that setting um, and that what happens when, you know, the rules get broken and, you know, do people have the control over their behaviour or do they get upset? And if they get upset, what, does, what happens then? So you, you start to see these things build over a period of time with children into um, 
into later childhood, into adolescence and in, into adulthood. Um, and they will just develop simply by us being part of a social setting that allows to uh, develop those. Um, I think once you, uh, once you get into sports, you know, suddenly there's, um, there's this idea of perhaps winning and losing, you know, and what happens when we win or lose and what do we reinforce when we win, win or lose? So, you know, children are very good at knowing. Like, we you know, I've, I've been coaching my rugby team now since the under sixes. I, I wouldn't keep score of any game, not least because actually I knew that probably for a lot of the years we lost quite a lot of our games. And, but I wanted to downplay that sense and not play the fact, well, we just play the game. Plus, they knew whether or not they'd won or lost. They didn't need me to tell them that. But if we overemphasize that, then, you know, generally speaking, throughout it, if you once within about five minutes of the game finishing, they're in, they've either gone home or we've gone in to get the hot dog or whether, whatever, they're, they're now chatting and the, the results get gets forgotten quite quickly. So just by the social setting, they start to understand the idea of, well, in fact, they might not understand, it might just be an implicit development of, I've come, I've played a game of rugby, I've gone and had a chat with my mates and I've gone home again. So it becomes, you know, you, you become able to regulate the idea of coping with winning or losing and recognising, you know, by within a few minutes of, of it finishing, there's something else that comes along and it's now time to chat with my mates. Um, sorry, I'm hoping this is, is following some sort of coherent line, but I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a way, there's a thing which sport does um, you know, so it enables us to develop emotional skills, it enables us to develop our capacity to uh, participate in a group and interact with that group and uh, communicate with that group. Um, and perhaps as part of that, we then, I think a key one from a psychosocial point of view, and we can talk about the difference between psychosocial and psychobehavioral, this is really a difference, but um, but starting to understand the, the you know, the rule, the moral rules that we as a country would like to follow or we as a society would like to follow. Um, you know, that idea of sportspersonship and uh, accepting defeat graciously and, um, and winning graciously and, you know, and, you know, kids don't always do that. We know that. Adults don't always do that. We really know that. So, you know, so they, I think it just offers lots of different opportunities. Um, I think the key thing is eventually with this is what happens when those skills are being developed. So generally speaking, those skills will develop just simply by allowing people to engage in that social setting. And, and there's lots of social settings at school. There's being at home with your parents, there's being with your family, um, being with your friends. There's lots of opportunity to develop some of these skills, but sometimes they're not developed. And that's the bit I think where we might want to start looking at being a bit more of a, taking more of an intervention approach in terms of explicitly trying to develop some of these things. I think that, I remember when, um, when I used to do some, some coach education for the RFU uh, on the old, uh, on, was it the old, the, the England Rugby Coaching Award? Um, they used to do a, a task for the coaches to do in the room where they, they get them to describe sort of what they, the, the coach's experience were of what their best player was or what their, um, the, the struggle, the difficult player was and, and compare the characteristics. And very few, uh, surprisingly for the coaches, were technical and tactical issues. Everything mm. they put down were the ones, so the, the ones that were the, 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 the key characteristics of the like were around their commitment, the work rate, they were on time, they were respectful. 
alongside the ones that were the, the, the difficult player was the one that was you know, not coachable, which is uh, a, a, a rabbit hole yes. probably go yeah, down yeah. in itself, um, and, and other things like that. But it was quite interesting that, that some coaches were actually quite taken aback that actually on the surface of things, the technical and tactical side with coaching kids wasn't actually something that they responded to as coaches the, the most. It was more actually what, what was the players like in front of us. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it, these, these things are really important. Like you say, they are real, real life skills that we're developing. How, how as coaches, if we're more aware of it, what, what can we be doing to develop these within our sessions? Well, I mean, let, let's say, I mean, you, you've got the, the classic... Um, you know, we've we've got these things around, around like uh, things called like the five C's, which um, Chris Harwood from Loughborough University put together quite a number of years ago now. And then you've got the other five C's, which was put together by uh, uh, Jean Gote and Wade Gilbert. Although actually, I think I'm building on learners' original work, original work around positive youth development. So we've got things like competence, character, connection, confidence, and caring, uh, which is the the work from Lerner, I think, and then the work from Chris Harwood around commitment, communication, concentration, control, and confidence. Now, but the, having it nicely labelled as five Cs, although there are actually two different sets of five Cs, which which is uh, probably not always the most helpful thing, but they're done with the idea of can we, if you step back and go, why would people try to package something? Uh, and ultimately, the idea of that is to facilitate people in going. I know social skills exist, but I don't really know what they are and I can't really pin them down, which then makes it quite difficult to create a, a curriculum. And that's just the same for people who go into coaching for the first time. I've played this sport for years and years, and you guys know this, I haven't done the, the masters with us, is, but how, pe- how well do people really know the sport? I played it for years and years, but how well do I really know it? And if I don't know it very well, it then becomes difficult to create a curriculum a coherent curriculum that I can follow over a period of time. Um, so I think what uh, what the five C's, the two sets of five C's, have done is it's almost tried to develop a, the initial, the, the the start of a curriculum. Um, now I have my own view around those, which is I'm not sure that it offers sufficient definition. But I'm sure those authors would say, well, if you go and read, there's more, there's plenty of definition in. If you want to go and have a look at it. So, you know, what is it that coaches need to do? You know, coaches need to do everything. Don't we? That's the part of the problem of being a coach is, you know, there's, there's nothing you don't need to know. Um, the, it's about perhaps starting to understand what that curriculum is. And I think a lot of it begins with going back to some of those more fundamental social skills of how well do kids take feedback? Um, do kids even ask for feedback? Uh, I, I mean, uh, my poor old son, Fred, who, who um, you know, he, he knows he gets used as a bit of a talking tool. But, you know, I, I constantly say to him, Fred, what's the most useful feedback? And he'll, he'll you know, eventually he, he's, he now knows the answer. He rolls, rolls his eyes and goes, OK, it's the, the feedback I asked for. But often we don't encourage kids to ask for feedback. We just give it to them. And then we wonder why it perhaps, you know, goes in one ear and out the other. Well, it's because they've not asked for that feedback. Our assumption is that we should just give it to them. Um, so, you know, and there is a study which has shown that, and it is just, you know, there's probably other studies, but there is a study which has shown that the most useful feedback in, a, in that study was the feedback which was asked for. But what if kids don't feel confident about asking for feedback? Um, you know, you, especially once you hit that adolescence phase where it moves from being... Um, 
you know, so we know from a, uh, a social setting point of view is that once uh, kids move into adolescence, peers become more important on superficially at least than adults. And that might be coaches or, so asking for feedback in front of your mates takes some guts because, you know, you can be, you can just be, you know, you're, you're the, you know, the, the teacher's pet idea and all those sorts of things that we all, you know, probably all four of us, uh, sorry, all three of us, <laughs> I've seen people now, um, but all three of us, because I can see three faces and I've realised I'm one of them now. Uh, the, you know, this, we all go through that period of, and, it, you know, we, you, we, you guys were involved when we talked about the, the role of impression management is how we start to manage the impression with, we're presenting in front of the people we think are important. And if those people we think are important are peers and those peers don't think that asking questions is a sign of coolness or whatever, it's definitely not cool to say coolness, then, um, you know, then they, we start to, they start to withdraw a little bit. So that's the psychosocial skill of simply asking for feedback and it's not simple, you know, suddenly starts to be removed. So that ability to take ownership over who I am within this social setting is a really core uh, skill. And, you know, you, you see it all the time where people don't do it and they don't then don't develop some level of self-control in terms of what happens when we start to win and lose, as in, well, um, so for example, um, uh, there's the, the idea of attribution theory. How do we attribute things that happen to us? So if I'm losing, what we tend to see a lot of is kids start to shout at each other and, um, and give fairly generic but meaningless in either encouraging or discouraging uh, comments. You know, we've got to do better. And I still do this, by the way, in five aside, so it's not just kids, you know, adults do it all the time. Rather than having the capacity to identify what's really going on here in order to facilitate a change to make things better. So you start to deal with frustration. You start to, you know, you're able to park the frustration and start to focus on what we need to do differently. Um, so they're all classic sort of social, uh, psychosocial skills. And you could argue, you know, so Collins and, and McNamara would, would probably start to say that ability becomes more of a psycho-behavioral skill because it's definitely a focused idea of how I, how I affect my behavior in the moment. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's, uh, sometimes I forget the question and I keep talking, so I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. Uh, no, I think you, um, you, you touched on some um, some really good points there. I think actually sometimes it's it can come back to some of the behaviours that we might exhibit as uh, as coaches as well. You know, we at the end of the day we're also human beings, and we you know get frustrated, and you know we might see things on the pitch that you know want to make us pull our own hair <laughs> own hair out. But that's why it's really important that we're aware of our kind of. That we keep asking the players to be more self-aware and that's key key element for them as a player but that's where for us as coaches we need to have that self-awareness as well and actually i think sometimes i know that i've been guilty of it um you know we're not quite self-aware of the, actually the body language and and our, and our tone and the way that we sometimes present ourselves and you know i think working you know working myself with with college students you know 16 to 18 you know they 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 pick up on <laughs> they pick up on everything as, as much as you you know you know they they are looking to impress their peers but they do pick up on on what the coaches are doing how the coaches are behaving and that can very much really quickly influence 
influ influence um, influence their behaviors as well. Um, is there, so so with that, how how would you encourage coaches to begin to regulate not only like, how they present themselves, but also how they're seeing players present themselves to each other, enable to enable them to enable the players to not feel that pressure from their from their peers to to want to to want to progress or want to search for feedback. Yeah, I mean, what a big question. That's the, that's the, that's the first thing. It's before we get the big guess. Yeah, you know. So obviously, again, you guys know about the who, what, how, um, and we can look at. So you know, as a coach, I need to the, the three. I'd say core. I mean, there's more than three because I'd say understanding yourself is core. Based on what you just said there, Harrison. Is that, but you can, you know, if you go with the who, what, how, who is it you're coaching? What are you coaching them, and how are you trying to do that? Well, psychosocial and psychobehavioral realistically fits in all three of them because we know that um, the better we can understand the person stood in front of us from a biopsychosocial point of view, the more we can perhaps target our intervention. So we can use our understanding of psychosocial and psychobehavioral skills in order to understand the person who, who stood in front of us. But we can also use psychobehavioral and psychosocial skills as being a curriculum of what I'm actually trying to teach you. So it's an explicit part of the curriculum that we're trying to get over here. Um, but we can then also use it as part of the, the idea of how I choose to communicate, which is a core how skill. So, um, so for example, simply saying to people, I'm I, I want you to keep going uh, and we'll only stop when you've got a question you want to ask that might be you never stop so but it's it would be an interesting thing to choose to do that if we know things like that and again it's not completely it's, it's not an absolutism it's a truism is that the, the best feedback is the feedback which is requested but it's only we only know that that's going to be helpful if the person we're asking to do that has actually got the confidence to go uh can you just come and tell me about something over here because if they hadn't they're never going to ask for that feedback. So it, it fits within the, the who, what, and the how in terms of how we um, choose to engage in a, in a coaching process. So I think for me, what you know, where does it start? It starts with, uh, as with all these things, it starts with understanding. How well do you understand the curriculum that you want to deliver and how well do you understand the person you're trying to deliver it to? Um, and how do you get that understanding? You have to engage in some form of professional development. Um, and that might be NGB, it might be university, it might be the fact there's a lot of free resource available through things like I Coach Kids. Um, you know, Simsborough have got a fair amount of things available these days. There's a lot of free stuff available out there. I think is, is, well, yeah, that's a very good point. Podcasts. I'm going to come back to that in a second, actually. <laughs> Podcasts are an amazing resource. But they, so yeah, you have to go and find something. Now, the reason why I've come back to that is, and I've, I, um, we're, we've just written a, a little bit about this. Uh, I'm writing a, a book chapter, which is led by uh, Anna Stockton. And we've talked about brief, only briefly, about the role of podcasts. And it was a, there was a phrase which someone came up years ago. I, I can't remember who it was now, but it was a brilliant phrase, which is word salad. Um, as in, it's a nice salad of words, but does it actually fill you up? And I think this is potentially the problem with podcasts, is that they're interesting to listen to, but there's so much that goes on within them. 
how do you capture it into something which is meaningful? Now, I, I think podcasts are brilliant for generating curiosity and, and engagement. What I think they're less good for is really pinning down, go and look at these things. So I would say, for example, we've written a book chapter on planning. There's a section in there on, um, and it's available on, on ResearchGate, but preferably go and buy the book that it's in. It's in, I should remember the name of the book, but it's, it's edited by uh, Christine Nash. It's, a, it's just been reissued. But the chapter we put in there, try to identify what are the actual psychosocial skills we think people need and what are the actual psychobehavioral skills that people need. Now, there's a resource there which captures them, which I'm not going to talk through. I'm not going to read it out words. I mean, I've got it literally in front of me at the moment just to sort of make things tweak in my head. But then, by the way, that's a psychobehavioral skill. It's called preparation. Um, so I think it's about going to the reading. So, you know, uh, the Harwoods and the um, Sports Coach UK, or sorry, U UK Coaching, have got these five Cs in, in infographics. They all exist somewhere if you want to go look at them but it's about trying to capture it into a meaningful concept that you can then put into your, into your work. Um, so how do we do it? I think the point is understand, to understand you've got to go away and do some research, do some reading, talk to people, listen to podcasts. I think you're right, Neil. I think that's one of the things that, that we've, we've really tried to do with the episodes that we've powered is actually try and get stuff that coaches can take away from it and actually apply. So actually, on that then, because you, you, like you said, you've coached your, your your sons at rugby group since they were six. What what sort of stuff have you put in place at, at sort of zebras to to sort of develop on these skills as well as the rugby side of things? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, that's a really good question, Chris, because you know that's a, you know it's a phrase I, I use is um, if you're going to be an educator, make sure hypocrisy is in your curriculum because uh, because have I done it particularly well myself? You know, ish. Um, but not, I'm not going to say I did it, I've done it brilliantly, um, because ultimately you've only got so much time. So, you know, it's one of the things I would say to any coach in, who works in that sort of voluntary capacity is just add up the number of hours you've got with the, with the kids over a year. It's unlikely to come to much more, unless you're in something a bit more, in inverted commas, serious. But, you know, for all the first three, first four years, I was with the... the the Otley uh, rugby team, we just met on a Sunday for two hours. You know, so over a year, that's probably not much more. By the time you've taken out the time when it's, it's absolutely chucked it down or the pictures are frozen, maybe 20, between 25 and 30 weeks. So you, you're not much more than 50 to 60 hours. So there's, there's relatively little you can do. So what I would say in that situation is if you're aware of the things that you'd like people to do, probably your biggest tool in, in, within that is going to be modeling the things that you want rather than it being an explicit part of the curriculum. You would model it in terms of your own behaviors and the tasks that you set. So we, uh, and again, this, this I'll talk about, then you guys know this as well already, but again, it's in that planning chapter is, if you think about planning a session about being, what's your objectives? What's the tasks? How are you gonna engage? Uh, sorry, how are you gonna communicate? And, how, and what sort of engagement do you want from the players? So there were times that I deliberately um, set up practices which were confusing. So I was expecting the players to be confused. Now that's, you, you know, it takes, it takes a while to get to that point, but I was interested to see how they might respond to that confusion and whether or not they would ask any questions or, 
um, would they stick with it? So you can start to build some of these things in, in a relatively implicit way into the tasks that you design uh, and the way in which you communicate or don't communicate. And you can be deliberately disruptive. And I think being deliberately disruptive is a, a good way of doing things. But to come back to your, your, your question, Chris, is that's probably been me more, been, been more led by beliefs and concepts rather than an explicitly written down curriculum that I'm going to plan for over a number of weeks or, or years. If, however, I'm, um, you know, we, we look at this from, you know, so if we look at the, the degree that we run with a group of young people, so they are still, you know, we know that adolescence now probably carries on till about 25, 26. So if you look at degree students coming in at 18, they are still at the, um, you could, some would argue they're in the middle of adolescence, not at the end of it. Um, if you think adolescence kicking off about 13 and finishing about 26 in terms of the brain maturation, you know, they're only probably about halfway, less than halfway through adolescence by that point. Um, so, so when you look at it from that perspective, we know that there's still a lot of time that we need to spend with those people developing their, their skills so we are relatively explicit in the way in which we run a degree in how we're trying to build those skills. So when it's so, if you're asking me as a as a someone who's designed an ex, a a long-term program of learning for young people, yes, it is explicitly built into that program. If you're asking me as a um, as the the coach, volunteer coach, then it, it's more of a it's explicit to an extent, but it's explicit based on my beliefs and concepts rather than an explicit curriculum that follows people through time. Uh, uh, so it's more about the modeling process with some things put in and perhaps some conversations with people who, going back to what I was saying before, is you, we can use the, the idea of um, psychosocial and psychobehavioral to understand our players. So, um, so yeah, there are the, I do look at the players and think about the way in which I interact with them based on what I think they might need more of. Again, it's, you know, perhaps at some point that becomes more explicit. Um, you know, we're at the under 16s level now and there are some of these lads who, uh, who are really starting to push on and want to progress into, uh, you know, a talent program. Um, and I think we can talk about what does it mean to be in a talent program? Uh, that, because I think then there is a need to really get more explicit with people. I, so I, I think our degree is a talent program. So you, people have been through 15 years of education. Um, and as they've gone through, they've been given more and more choice over what they do. But they then hit a, a degree and I'm going, well, we're now, if you've looked at it from a football point of view, they're in the professional development phase. The phase where they're trying to develop and ready themselves for the next step. It's the last stage of their formal, um, unless we go on and do a master's degree or whatever, but for, you know, for realistically, it's the last stage of their formal educational uh, programs as a young person before they move on. So I see us as being that final stage of talent development. And I, I do see it as being our job to really push hard. Um, and, you know, the, there's, there's implications for that when, you know, the, we have things like the National Student Survey, for example, which don't necessarily reflect the fact that we should be pushing students hard. So, you know, I think we should be disrupting students. That they, if you read any literature around adult education, 
it talks about the crucial role of being disruptive. Now, if you want, <laughs> there's a conflict then between if we're too disruptive, do we just make them a bit annoyed? And by the time they, and then they sit down to fill a questionnaire which says, how nice was your course? The, the two are in conflict. But I, I still believe, I think it's more important for us to be disruptive than it is to facilitate someone filling in a questionnaire for us. So, um, so yeah, I think there's the, so the, I think there's a difference between being that voluntary coach and being that coach within a talent program, you know, is the pair of you are really, you know, so Harrison, you're part of that ACE Academy program, I presume still, and, and Chris, you know, you, why does the university have a rugby program and invest a lot in it? It's because it's, you know, I think the RFU see the university program as being a, uh, a side entry tool for, you know, not like a rook side entry, but, you know, for crap joke there, but, um, <laughs> but it's, we appreciate it, but it, you know, it's, it's still a talent pro. It's a, it's a different route in to, for, for the, perhaps the, the people who haven't gone straight into playing uh, championship or, or premiership rugby. There's a, there's a, there's a, if you like a third strand that they've now created to, to offer a greater opportunity for more players to then progress in while still, you know, opportunity, opportunity to engage in an educational program. So I think there's a difference between that voluntary and professional sector in terms of what you can do or what you should do. Yeah, uh, and I think I, I see that, I see that, you know, firsthand, um, you know, with, you know, uh, 16 they enter kind of the, the the pathway in which they kind of they get seen by me that being an ace academy or um or an academy or an academy setup um you know and that's this is where you probably we probably do need to be a little bit more explicit with with kind of what key attributes from a psycho behavioral uh standpoint that that, that we're after um just because the demands at the next step which is well in my setting is for well, potentially three of them, we're averaging four, um, four players each year going on and signing professional contracts. Now, that's a step up. That's a step up again within within the pathway. And like like you were saying, there they're still in that adolescent phase. But what I think what we, what we do in our two years is almost try and give them the necessary tools to be able to cope with the increased increased demands on their side on the, the, the of their psychological skills for, for to deal with to deal with to deal with that kind of elite elite step up. So at the age of at the age of sixteen, what kind of I know it's not a, a one size fits all shoe, but in terms of generic skills from a psycho psychological standpoint, would you say that they kind of I mean I've got an idea in my head here, but what yeah. in your examples, you know, what when they finish your you're under sixteen at the end of this season, when they go on to whatever they go on to, what what key psychological skills would you like to see them exhibit? The the first one fundamentally is understanding now we might go is that psycho is that psycho um psycho behavioral psychological skill i think it's a fundamental skill which whatever you go into is what's the level of understanding so so do people when they are put into a talent program however we want to talk about that so like i say i think going into a degree course is a talent program you know, it's a final stage. I think it's I think it's a really helpful analogy for us to start looking at it like that. So do they understand what it means to be in a talent program? Do they understand the expectations which come with that? So whilst we might be talking about that um, the uh, 
that you know the best feedback is a feedback which is requested. We might we might hope that people do that. I think you stop hoping, you start expecting. You know, people should be asking for it. Going, and and it might be you. So you know, I'm trying to do this. What do you think? Um, I really want to get to this level. What do you think I need to do? And your your question, your answer to that question might well be, well, I think you need to go and work that out for yourself a little bit. Come back to me, and we'll start talking a bit more detail. But if you just want me to give you the answer, we're not doing that anymore. So I think understanding the expectation of what it means to be in a talent program. Now, people will be at different stages of the capacity to understand that. So then you're getting into things like, well, if you don't quite understand that, we might need to start somewhere else in terms of the skills you need versus if you do understand that, then we, we've got something else to go on to. But when we see these um, co coexisting talent programs, so you, you, you're both in those. So the ACE has got, the, you know, what's they call dual career, this idea of a dual career thing of educate you've been you're in education you're in both full-time education and full-time talent which is in itself an interesting idea which is can you be full-time in both but if you were to read um the work of uh, Anya McNamara and, and Dave Collins they would talk very very strongly about the power of the transferability of of these skills so if you're not turning up on time for lectures then there's a problem if you're not telling people that you're not going to lectures there's a problem um, if you're in a talent program, if you use these skills properly within that, within your educational program, you should all be hitting pretty high level grades because you've been, someone said to you, you can do this. So your grades should probably reflect that. If your grades are crap, then there might be some issue that we need to get into, but it might also be because you're not, these skills that you need to be in this rugby program or in this ice skating program or this basketball program they should be transferring across and if they're not you perhaps need to be asking yourself why they're not i think that should be a core expectation of um people seeing the transferability of these things um so how do we do that well I, i'm just going to go back to say well you go and look at the reading and, and look at how people do so i'll just very briefly run through what um what uh, Anya and Dave talk about. So they talk about, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten core psychobehavioral skills. So commitment to the performance domain, vision of what it takes to develop, goal setting, focus and distraction control, belief can, uh, can excel, as in belief you can excel, quality practice, coping with pressure, realistic performance evaluations, social communication skills, imagery. So they're saying that if you like, there's, there's both your curriculum, but also your tools that you can, you know, perhaps look at people with. But something as simple as quality practice, do how many people actually understand what it means to engage in a quality practice? And I, I don't think that's just players. I think that's anyone who, who goes into a setting which is meant to be about being better, but do they really understand what it means to be better? So, um, and I think coaches can facilitate that. So again, hypocrisy coming to the fore here because I don't do this anywhere near enough. How often do coaches start the session off with saying, right, today, guys, what we're going to do is of these three or four things. Rather than saying, okay, guys, who can tell me what we're going to do today? Because actually that program has already been set out for the players to look at prior to coming. 
and you, the question becomes what we who can tell me what we're, what we're meant to be doing today and has anyone got anything specific that they'd like to actually target whilst we're doing that today so you know we, we as lecturers have to put out um module handbooks but how often and again i, I tried to make sure i do this but how often did when you were at university did any of your lecturers refer explicitly back to the handbook on on each session you turned up for or how many just started lecturing oh yeah okay <laughs> volumes. so you know so i think we, both did it. We, we need to be given the benefit of the doubt i can't remember what i did last week let alone well yeah that's fair enough but you know so you know we we write out learning outcomes for students to look at now you could argue, how can you write a learning outcome before you know who the learner is? But I think everyone's got to have a sense of where, where we see ourselves going. Um, but something, you know, so when you start to break these things down, quality practice, now I wouldn't say any more than you would try and teach, you know, pick every single rugby skill going and try and teach it in one session. You can't take all 10 of those and try and teach it in one session. So I think it becomes about, as a coach, identifying where you think you would want to start. My, my general view is for a lot of people would be understanding what quality practice is um, and uh, focus distraction control and some performance evaluations might be the three places where I see there being some of the biggest issues around. But I would also do some psychosocial skills in there as well in terms of that capacity to communicate with people tell people what you actually you're actually thinking but i think that comes again back to uh, a coach's or a a leader's capacity to model those behaviors as in you know your willingness uh, it's a phrase i use a lot with with the students is be prepared to look stupid the more you are the less you will so that willingness to stand up in front of people and say something which potentially puts you at um, at risk of being judged is a really core skill, I think. Um, and that if you're not willing to do that, now it may be that people, no one, some, there'll be some people who never want to do that, but will be quite happy to come and speak to you one-to-one. -one. You go, well, okay, on balance, I'll cope with that. That's fine, we'll stick with that. I don't want people to be show ponies just for the sake of being a show pony. And, you know, if you, if you watch, there are some people who are very happy to ask questions or answer questions, but only when they know the answers. So there's a difference between engaging in something and showing off. There are some people who quite like to show off, but will only show off when they know how to show off. And if they don't, they'll stay quiet. So, um, so I, yeah. So to come back to your your question, uh, Harrison, I think you know, at sixteen, I think that just the, you start to hit that stage where people should be more willing to be aware of what they're in. Now, again, we know from, um, there's, some there's some research done in personality development. So um, if you look at the five core traits of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, um, agreeableness, and neuroticism, if you look at some of the research around that, we know that conscientiousness tends to go with people's willingness to um, to engage in an education, for example, in an educational program in a in a way which uh, seems to be like they're self-aware of what they're doing. What we also know is that um, 
in adolescent boys, conscientiousness as a whole, you know, if you looked at it as, an, as a group, tends to drop and then come back up again towards the end of adolescence. So at just at a time when we might want boys to be, and I'll talk about boys, and it doesn't happen the same extent with girls. Um, so just as we perhaps want boys to be starting to recognize what it's like to be in a talent program, part of their personality shifts. And it is only, it's not like it's a drop like off a cliff edge. It's a, it's a drop and then it comes back up again. Um, that's when we tend to want them to be starting to recognize what it's like. So you might have to sometimes accept that this is not gonna go as well as you'd really like it to go for some of those boys. Um, and that's similar for girls as well, but, we, but when you look at the research and whether or not this is a socialization effect or whether or not it's a brain maturation effect is open to question, but you probably won't see the same thing if you're, if you're coaching girls in a, in a talent program. Um, so, but generally speaking, the socialization process people go through will still leave them with, I'd like you to be more like this versus I'd like you to be more like this. So you, you, you know, I've, I've spoken to people who coached, I've, I've coached uh, young females and young males. And you can generally see a, a greater willingness not to, excuse my French, dick about when you, when you coach young females, when you coach young males. Now, is that, is that a, a sex difference or is that a gender difference? As in, if it's a sex difference, it, you know, it's almost like it's built in, it's hardwired in that that will be the case. Whereas it is a gender difference, is that just because girls are treated differently from boys through an educational program in terms of both parenting and teaching? I think that's open to question, but it doesn't mean you can't use these skills to just try and make sense of going, ideally, what I'm, again, if you look at the data around males and females who are in inverted commas elite, typically there's not really any great difference in terms of the skills that these people have. So once you get to us, once you get past that, adolescent point and you look at elites it seems to be that if you want to be really good at something you probably have all of these pretty well nailed down or a good chunk of them pretty well nailed down so it's not like it's something which um carries on through if you like it's it just seems to be there might be those differences earlier on Andy, we'd, we'd sort of looking back at the talent development side of things and um you know we'll take dppr as, as an example for this we You've mentioned a few times about the best feedback is the feedback we request. Obviously, mm. when you've gone through that process of um, getting in or not getting in, and, and feedback is then provided, is there is there uh, obviously that's usually quite generic feedback. What what could um, within the pathways as an example, what what could they do better in these examples to to make sure that that feedback is, um, I don't know. <laughs> encouraging the players to then come and ask for feedback alongside that. I don't really know. There's a question in there somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where I'm going with it. Yeah, I, I think, that, that, again, it comes back to resource, I think, with those things, Chris, as in, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, I've seen elements of the Yorkshire DPP programme, and there, there's a resource which says, you know, who's staffing that? And if, if you're relatively reliant on volunteer coaches to do that, then there's a, there's a, there's a, there's only so much you can expect from a system that operates like that. Now, there's all sorts of good reasons why it operates like that. So um, there's no implied criticism in that at all. It, it, is, it is what it is. And people go into these things um, with, with best intentions and in good faith. And you know, we fu should fundamentally respect that people do that uh, on that basis. Um, 
But school, if you look at the way schools operate, schools typically have, uh, so the school that my son goes to, they have a planner. Now, ideally, that planner is something that they fill in because they see it's a good thing to do, rather than if you don't do this, you get told off. Um, so if you've got, so what is your plan for the, for the, for the being in the DPP programme? Well, what is the plan of the DPP programme? You know, it's, it's almost like a circular argument. And if they don't know what the plan is, how can they have a plan for it? And I think that comes back to the question around quality practices. What are they going to get the opportunity to do? And when do they find that out? And if they're only finding out when they arrive, then it's hard to respond to that. So you then, you then have to sort of respond to it. So, you know, when I've watched it, you, I think there's, you know, a talent program from a technical tactical point of view. What happens is you just play probably with uh, a group of players who are probably a bit more motivated and a bit more skilled. So the level just goes up anyway. You know, it's irrespective of what a coach does, the level will go up because um, what's expected will change because of that. And you can argue that's actually not a bad thing at all, really. But if you're looking at it more from a talent program, so, you know, you'll, you'll be aware of the work of Pam Richards where she talks about slow off-field, fast on-field. Um, what, do, what do players see a talent program being? Is it simply about turning up and, and going in a coaching session, which is on the pitch, in the pool, on the court, you know, on the range, whatever? Or is, is a coaching programme about a slow off-field, fast on-field? And how are they expected to engage with um, uh, performance analysis feedback? Do they do anything with that or are they just told about that? You know, um, and how does that align with their own individual plan for what it is they think they want to be getting better at? And I think most players sort of know what they want to get better at, but are they explicitly asked to try and identify those things? Because if I don't really know what I'm meant to be getting better at, how can I then ask for feedback on what I want to get better at? So, so you can look at it as this idea of, um, you know, if I go back to Colin's things here, of, uh, and Bonya and Dave's things, a commitment to performance domain and vision of what it takes to develop. If I don't know what it takes to develop, it's, it's hard for me to have that vision. And if I don't have the vision, how can I ask for feedback on something? Now, I might have a bit of uh, vision about going, so if I'm in rugby, I want, my, I want my kicking to be better. I want my jackling to be better. So I might have pictures of things that I think I need to be better at. So I do have some level of vision, but do I have a vision of overall what that might need to be? Again, coming back from that, there's 16. You know, it's, we've got to have some realistic expectations of, uh, of what that is. So it might take two or three years to actually build the capacity to have the vision in the first place. And what does it really mean to be a, um, you know, an elite rugby player? And I think some of that might also be about, do you know how hard this will be and what the level of competition will be? And everything that that entails in terms of your capacity to engage in quality practice day after day. And, you know, it, it's not always going to be the TV. And, you know, you, you, you're suddenly, some, someone's running highlight reels of you running in three or four tries. It, what it's not showing is the, 
the sore shoulder, the injuries, you know, the minor injuries you're having to carry, the um, how hard you've had to work in training, all those different things. Do they have that vision of what it really means to be a, that, that player? But you can't just suddenly go, boof, have all of that to a 16-year-old because it'll, it'll blow their mind. So it comes back to, and that's why I say, if you, if you look at the planning, how do we want to plan this over a period of time? And how do we help that player understand and buy into that plan? And are they able to contribute to that plan? Now, I think if we can do that, then we're probably moving in a decent direction. But that's a lot to ask of, I mean, it's too much to ask of a volunteer. It's not if you're working with someone who's, who's potentially got a full-time opportunity. I think, I also think it goes back to that conversation head around um, being a disruptor. Now, for us as coaches, it's, we can develop some of these, these understandings and skills by, by putting challenges, challenges in there and, uh, and, and being that disruptor. I think there's actually um, uh, a new paper by, by, by Jamie Taylor on um, how, we can, how we can put more, more challenges within in this hand on the pathway. Um, you know, is that, is that something that do you think before the age, I know that we look at it in our environment and then the, um, the academy look at it as well in terms of, right, we will deliberately put challenges in, um, almost to set the players up to fail and look at how they uh, begin to overcome and, uh, and come together um, to try and exhibit some of those key psychological skills. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you should be considering if you're coaching um, under 16s and below, or do you think it's you should allow them to 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 try and learn to develop these skills before trying to really test them at, at those older age groups? You you do it when it's ready. I think that to me that's the that's the core element of this is it's not um, an age specific thing. I think it's you know if you've got someone if you go back to for example again you guys would be aware of the three worlds idea of. Um, why do, you, why do you come to rugby? Is it because um, you just like playing rugby and be with your mate? Is it because you actually want to be better than you are currently? You actually have a goal to be better? Or is it that you're coming because you want to be the best in this group and you want to really push yourself on? Um, you've probably got those players like that. It depends, if you've got some early maturers, as in early cognitive maturers, you might have a player like that from the age of 12. Yeah, I mean, it's... So if you've got that play at the age of 12, why wouldn't you help them make use of that? Now, it might be that their motivation changes and then they go, oh, actually, no, I just want to turn up and play because I'm, you know, school's kicking in, homework's kicking in, I'm finding all these different things quite difficult. Um, but then you could be going, well, just think about how you take that skill and do it over there, um, even when you don't like things. So actually being doing things that you don't like doing is actually a pretty good skill to have. Because by the way, that's what it's going to be like if you want to be a you know a professional rugby player. There'll be things that you have to do that you don't really enjoy doing, but you have to do if you want to be this. So, you know, if you don't want to do that homework, well, you know, what are you going to do about that? You're just going to sit and sulk about it, or are you actually going to accept the challenge and just crack on? So, you know, that's those are things you can do. And I think you can do that from the age of age of 12. And I think, you know, it's it's not a bad thing for parents to see when you when you see your, your child really enjoying something and buying into it and actually see them when the challenge comes along, they actually keep investing in it, that you go, well, what did, what were you doing there that you could perhaps do over here with the things you don't enjoy? Now, as you're hitting teenagers, 
they may look at you as if to go, oh, you know, as and you might guess that I perhaps, perhaps had this is the eye roll and the oh shut up. But actually, we know that um, despite the fact that adolescents start to be more engaging with their peers. I can't remember where, this is a piece of research I read a while ago. It might well be from someone like Sarah Jane Blakemore, who's well worth following on Twitter and well worth getting her book, is that um, it's the, the, the core thing for a parent at that stage is, is to be the, the steadying influence that doesn't disappear. So despite the fact that adolescents might treat their parents like shit, sometimes, not all times, is the core element of that is that they feel able to do that because they know that they can do that and that that person is not going to disappear on them. So it's almost like the, the parent stays as the anchor in that in that scenario or the carer. So irrespective of the, of the shit that that person might put you through, that person stays steady. Now, it doesn't mean you don't fall out and all those different things that parents and kids do as we, you know, we... Um, we live experience as kids where we fall out of parents, but it's that steadying influence. So, um, so even though parents might say that sort of stuff and think, oh, it's in one ear and out the other, probably some of it will stick now and then. Um, but so I, I think, again, what can coaches do as part of talent programs is get the parents to buy into this, get them to see the, the links across the, you know, like we, the fact that if you've got these skills in this environment, there's no reason why you can't take that skill and put it into this environment. So if you keep going when things are tough here, you should be able to recognize that and use it in a different environment where you're giving up when things are getting tough. Um, and that cross fertilization should, you then start to build a level of self-awareness of what it means to be talented. And so they get more ownership. And I come back to that word again, they start to understand what does it mean to be talented in inverted commas. And, I think that's that's a conversation that we should probably be having with anyone who goes into a, a DPP program or whatever talent pathway exists. That should be a fairly important conversation early on. As in, what does it mean to be here? And what are the expectations that are now on you? And by the way, if this isn't what you want to do, because you just want to play rugby, as in, you know, how many times do people who are good at rugby or good at sport? who are selected into a talent program without ever being asked, do you want to be in a talent program without ever being told this is what it means to be a talent program. And that person goes, gone, I just like playing football. I just like playing rugby. You know, you're suddenly telling me I need to be all these things and you're shouting at me because I'm not that person, but actually that's not the person I want to be. So we, you know, we, we make assumptions. We might watch what players are doing and think, well, you're a talented player. You need to be in a talent program without ever saying to them, do you want to be in a talent program? then you, you could see how you could put that person off quite quickly. Um, and we, you know, we, there's been people when we've introduced that three worlds idea. Uh, I remember uh, you probably know, um, well, you might, I don't know where she, where she was in the, in the levels, but Chrissy Patterson, um, very good football coach, was took the women's football team at Leeds Beckett for a few years. She's now back up in the Northeast and she's involved in one of the centers up there. She recognized that one of her best players was, um, she played football because she just liked playing football. She wasn't particularly interested in uh, in being that talented player that everyone assumed she wanted to be. She was just a good footballer. So, I, again, sorry, I'm waffling a little bit, there, but hopefully oh. it makes sense. But I think it comes back to being why, you know, if I understand your motivations, 
and I understand the things I think need to be better at, but what do I understand about your reasons for being here? And um, and, and have I explained those? Do I get into the expectancies of what, what's coming here? And, and can I get you to see the crossover effects of some of these things? Um, I, I think that's, uh, that, that's a, a sort of a great thing to sort of finish on there, Andy. Um, I, I think there's been lots there that I think people will be able to take away. I mean, I've got like two pages worth of notes <laughs> again. Um, yeah. Which is uh, which is brilliant, and you know that's the whole point is we want to try and make sure that we can make coaches more aware of, of some of these things. And you've just made some great points there to finish around, you know, understanding the reasons why their motivation, why they're part of it, and then trying to add that and include that into the the practice that we're we're creating and the quality of that. And I, I think there'll be lots of stuff that coaches can connect and and take away there. So thanks for uh, giving up your time on your day off um, and, and coming to chat to us. Yeah, no problem. I'm still, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting to see what I'm doing on my day off yet, so I'm all right. <laughs> Might be a bit of coffee time now. In fact, the dog's looking at me saying, when are we going out? <laughs> but so, yeah, thanks very much for having me on though, guys. I mean, hopefully, hopefully helpful, but I'll just reinforce the idea that podcasts, are, I think they're really great for generating curiosity. But uh, so my signpost would be that there's a, there's a book chapter online which is about planning, it's on ResearchGate, people want to go and look at it, then, you know, it gets into the beginnings of this, and then there's there's all sorts of directions you can go off and, and work with that, so yeah, hopefully it's a good stimulus to move on to look at other things. Uh, excellent, no, thank you, uh, thank you very much. No problem. Well, I think that was worth a three-week uh, delay on putting out an episode, Harrison, because um, Andy's uh, blown my mind there with some of the stuff that we spoke about in the last hour. Yes, yeah, I did... Um... I think you know, both of us had, uh, well, I had, didn't had two years of uh, Andrew Abraham leading, leading a lot of my stuff on my master's, and I didn't think he could blow my mind anymore, but the man never ceases, <laughs> never ceases to amaze. Uh, but I think there was some, some re a real fascinating insight into uh, psychosocial and psychobehavioral skills and, uh, and how they look in the development pathway. Um, but I think it also gave us some cracking insight how we, how we can actually begin to deliver that in, in multiple different environments that, 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 we're, that we're in. Yeah, and I think it's he really focused on that that psych, psychology bit, and a lot of Andy's other researchers sort of been been linked sort of around that, especially within sort of coach decision making and, and other things as well. But um, you know, I think one of the things that we probably do forget, especially when we're coaching with these age groups, is around that this assumption that we should always be the person that gives feedback. You know, we talk about in coach education that you know you've got to be seen to be actively coaching, which then involves part of that is giving feedback. When actually, uh, I've got it written down here that, that Andy's written down that at a certain point that their peers become more important. So actually the feedback that we're giving is sometimes probably meaningless compared to how it might come from one another rather than me as a 35-year-old block coaching a bunch of 15-year-olds. Yeah, uh, and I think throughout all of that chat around um, feedback and um, and what Andy was saying there kind of really reminded me of a conversation we had back in oh god was it what, season three um with, uh, with Mark. Oh, I know but it's, we've done we've done so much in between um with Mark Bennett around you know how we can begin to incorporate what I think he called ninjas um especially the more confident players in the group and you know and maybe can it can we encourage them to give you know feedback to to other players can we encourage them to actually essentially speak up and actually ask feedback themselves because you know, like, like you said there, the best form of feedback is, is the feedback that they ask for, because that means they're actively listening. They're wanting to engage in the process. And, you know, 
they want to get better. So that's why they're coming to us. Well, you as a 34 year old man um, to enable them to, to want to get better. So, you know, let's use, let's use the resources we have around us. Now, if that's someone who's a little bit more confident within the group, bam, let's use it. Let's use him as a ninja. So that's what really kind of, you know, it sparked a lot of, a lot of good memories back, back from that Mark Bennett episode. Yeah, because I mean, Andy touched on the the fact that we've got to make them, they've got to be prepared sometimes to look stupid, which, you know, is is not always the case with when you're with your peers. But actually, uh, I've got an idea that, you know, people's willingness to engage and is linked to their self-awareness. So actually, they generally only answer the questions that they feel they know the answers to because it's comfortable. Um, I think, you know, you touched on it with him around that chat around um, Jamie Taylor's recent paper on like challenge and, and how we bring that in. And, uh, you know, I think it's right, we probably do need to, to, to challenge more, but actually it's, it's doing it in the right way. And that comes back to something that we've, we've, we've talked about a lot in all three seasons of the podcast around that, that understanding the who and how you part, understanding your participants is still number one of everything that we do. Yeah, that was what, that, that's what was majorly interested. Um, is that you know Andy gave examples of how you know the psycho uh, the psychosocial and psycho behavioral stuff really kind of fits into understanding our who, understanding our what, and understanding our how. You know, so you know, how are we introducing it into our curriculum? What does that look like? And you know, if we understand the who, that's how we can link the three together. Um, you know, I think you know what, what was evident throughout all of that that you know these psychological skills that we learn from any sport not just rugby it could be you know tennis football basketball netball you know they are those psychological skills are transferable in all walks of life they are ultimately social skills they are you know that competitive edge that you need to survive in the world it's that you know knowing how to lose correctly that's you know pivotal and you know when things go wrong in life you need to be able to break that down um you know, and, that, and that's why it got really interesting with that that chat with, you know, when you were talking about McNamara and Collins around um, transferable skills, especially in you know in psychology. Now, your better rugby players, he was saying, should be the best in the classroom because they because they know how to apply themselves. They apply themselves in the best way in every environment. You know, and that, that's something that I know that we've been really strong at in in my environment is that you know we want to develop you as a person, an athlete, and as a player. So you know, when the going gets tough. You know, when it's really tough and it's you, you, you know you're 70 minutes into a into a game with 10 minutes left on the clock, you know, you're not just going to give up because it, it's got a little bit hard, and that that transfers over. But you've got you've got you've got an assignment due in a week's time. You know, you you, you know you you want since you might have left it to the last minute, but like you've got that mental fortitude to stick with it and you know and really and really get and really get the best grades out of yourself. Yeah, and no, you reference that back on you know the the, the course and how they like to see that transferable skill linked to that as well. Um, but that was what was so, but that, but that kind of blew my mind when we were talking around adolescence and how that actually goes from, he was, you know, in his eyes, that goes from 13 all the way to 26. But yeah. that explains a lot. You know, I've worked in the university environment with you. You're working in it now and you've probably got 21, 22 year olds in there that actually are still, that are still, that still aren't the really, still aren't adults yet in terms of, uh, brain maturation and actually like, like it's really important even at, even at a, a university standpoint that we're still drilling in these good behaviors and actually beginning to develop their understanding of the environments that they're in and what that might impact going forward but also impact them in the current environment that they're in no, I, I agree because he touched on it at the very start of the conversation that sport is a social setting 
and then actually all of these things come out of it. But it was interesting when I mean, we recorded that on literally Monday morning to go out to come out on the Wednesday that we're going out, and and I've said a full day um, at work um, then, and I met a few players, and actually, you know, started to bring in some of the with, with some of the one to ones I had. We never actually got on to chatting about the rugby. We really focused on them and how they're doing first and foremost. Um, and I don't know if that had a positive correlation, but actually, we we trained really well on Monday night. So I don't know whether they felt more relaxed because we'd actually talk about the actual tech and tech side of things. We were more seeing where, where they're at as people and get, you know, connect with them more on that that level rather than actually delving into the the weeds of some 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 tech and tech stuff. Um and I even started with the the first question obviously we've 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 previewed for the game that we're gonna do on Wednesday. So I started with the, the first question was tell me what we're doing today in attack. Well, the first question I asked lads, see how many we're going to interact with it and get the get that engagement straight away. Um, and it, it did have a positive, well, it was a good session. That could have just been a fluke. But actually the engagement from the players rather than coming from me was all player-led anyway. And it was, it was just quite interesting to start with that question rather than sort of outlining what the objectives were, which is what I would probably do normally. But that, once again, it, it, it puts yourself as a coach in the firing line under the spotlight that you, know, you have to make sure that your messaging is really clear before they go out there so that you get so there's a clear understanding and this is what you know and this is this this is a, one of the big takeaways i think for anyone that's listening now is that you know we're quite fortunate because we're full-time we're full-time coaches and this is our environment but you know when we're looking to develop these skills from you know from the from from really kind of under eights and upwards we do that through modeling and this is what Andy spoke about a lot around right modeling those positive behaviors. And you know, yes, at the start of that, it's you know, up until about 13, 14, when he spoke about it, you know, the role models are still the still the coaches, it's still it's still us. So if we're modeling those strong behaviors and we're enforcing those strong behaviors, you know, when they do step up and start looking at their peers to impress, hopefully their peers are also beginning to model those positive behaviors. And it's really important that and this goes back to the previous season. Um, you know, when we talk about coaching behaviors in Neil Holmes. Now, everything is a coaching behavior. I'm not putting more pressure on coaches, but if you're there 15 minutes early and you're putting out the cones and you're doing that every week and you miss a week, all of a sudden that's you're breaking you're breaking that habit. You the players are understand the players understanding of you and 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 your behavior. They know that it's off, and then all of a sudden they potentially could think that there's you know there's a chink in the armor. So this is really important that we, if we want if we want these young players to grow up and be, you know, you know, respectful, competitive, knowing how to win, knowing how to lose in, in, in good ways, then you know, we need to make sure that we're modeling these positive behaviors from, from a young age. And that includes potentially just shouting on the sideline, or maybe shouldn't be shouting on the sideline. Oh, that, that, that could open a can of worms, couldn't it, Chris? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even then, you know, it does it. it that that's you see a lot of these these young coaches and that is generally how a lot of them tend to come out of the blocks and coach. And I was the same until I became more self-aware. And that was what sort of, I've, I've got it written down here, Andy talked about that role of impression management. Who am I? And that really links back to uh, the episode with Dan Abrams, where we did the whole thing around understanding you and uh, personal characteristics and the role that they play. So if you've been interested by anything in this episode with Andy, you definitely need to go and listen to the episode with um, with Dan, um, because again, you know, we spoke to Dan for well over an hour on that, and 
I had a massive headache after that because there was just so much detail in there and that, and that completely, again, we've used this phrase a lot, but just blew my mind. And it's it, it's definitely something we need to be more aware of because everyone will develop these skills, um, but sometimes we just need to be specific with them as well and be really clear on how we're developing these these social skills to make these players more what? social. Yeah. 100%. 100%. But then to be honest, Chris, I think knowing you for the last what, ooh, seven years, not many, many things, many little things can blow your mind. So that, these conversations. How long has it been? Seven years. Fucking hell. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, it's. But no, it was, a, it, was, it was a cracking episode. And there's, you know, I think. There's plenty to take away from um, from that. There is, there is. So uh, there's only going to be a week until uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, we'll be looking at more things on the, the talent development stuff with uh, technical and tactical, which we'll be looking at next week and the role that plays within uh, talent development. Uh, Charlie's got all our social media details at the end. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Cheers for listening. Don't forget to join in the discussion at Big Breakdown HQ on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you.